My name is Brie Castellini. I used to be a spy. My name is Chris Cherry. I used to be happy to be here. And this is Burn Notice, where we're always happy to be here. Sometimes. A weekly rewatch of the USA Television masterpiece, Burn Notice, about Michael Weston, a spy. Throughout this podcast, we will be rating each episode on whether it is an episode of television, a great episode of television, or a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to know what complicated calculations go into these ratings, listen to our intro episode or wait until the end, where we'll explain them again. Also, if you or anyone you know knows Jeffrey Donovan, please get in touch, uh, and for no other reasons. Well, for a couple of other reasons, and those reasons are that you can send us questions, suggestions, compliments, Jeffrey Donovan introductions, and absolutely no criticism of any kind at burnnoticepodcast at gmail.com, or to our Twitter, at burnnoticedpod. That's burnnoticed with a D. You know, it's funny, whenever I'm thinking of the thing that I'm going to say at the beginning of the episode, I always forget that it's like, I used to be a thing. And so I was actually going to say, I'm just happy to be here. But then I realized the last second (laughs) that it was used to. And so now I'm no longer happy to be here. Yeah, it's amazing how language can influence the way that you feel about things like being on a Burn Notice podcast. True. Very true. (laughs) Before we get into this episode, like... Uh, beat by beat. I want to ask you a question. Is this the most okay. fan servicey episode of Burn Notice up to this point? Because I feel like it is. Uh, it, define fan servicey in context. I think, like, this is an episode that so far feels like the most made for people who have been watching every episode of Burn Notice. I feel like there's a lot of, like, callbacks and things. And there are a lot of callbacks. I, I did. I did know that it was interesting that this is I think it's our first uh, exa- uh, t- our first recurring client episode, which yeah. I don't think we've seen before. I don't think any of the clients have come back. Even earlier episodes of this season, like mentioned earlier clients, but like they were vague enough that it, it might not even be a client on the show. So, yeah, it was interesting to sort of see, like, what happens when we have a recurring character like that um, and how that sort of influences the way the plot works but i also think there was like other stuff too because like i felt there was a lot of like they made sure to like definitely make a joke about yogurt for example and like also for some reason (laughs) they brought they brought back the very funny joke of people wearing michael's clothes (laughs) i do love people wearing michael's clothes though honestly it might be my favorite bit on this show and um it's also just a very um shippy episode for Fee and uh, Michael. That's true. Uh, I will say, I really enjoyed this episode. Uh, maybe too. it's because I'm a sucker for fan servicey stuff. But I also thought that it was like, for being, I think you have convinced me, yeah, I, I would agree this is probably the most fan servicey episode so far. I will say, it was probably one of the more coherent plots especially from our old friend Alfredo Barrios Jr. So speaking of, I should probably mention what episode we're talking about. It is season two, episode seven, Rough Seas, which aired August 21st, 2008, and was written by Alfredo Barrios Jr. and Michael Horowitz and directed by Jeremy Chechik. All names we've heard before. Um, It's a pretty run-of-the-mill Bernadette crew, but I think the best version of that so far, I think this is like a surprisingly genuinely good episode of Burn Notice that is super Burn Notice. It really is. I'm trying to remember what episodes Michael Horowitz has written before. Because I 
I feel like I remember liking episodes that he wrote. Ooh, ooh, he wrote Bad Breaks. Yeah, I think he's That's... a good writer. Oh my gosh, he's a good writer. Oh, he wrote Staff. Uh, he wrote Scatterpoint, so episode five. I like that one a lot, too. It was a good episode. All right, so yeah, I think Michael Horowitz is like a, like a mediating factor <laughs> to the like Barrios Nicks monstrosity. Yeah. But yeah, this episode is kind of bonkers. It I is kind of bonkers, but in a way that like it totally makes sense. Oh, definitely. Although a counterpoint, though, I will say in this episode, Michael has been the most toxically mas- masculine that he's ever been. That's true. Well, he. I mean, I think Michael is kind of always toxically masculine, but usually he is more passive about it because he doesn't have to be active. But now both the women in his life are uh, themselves active and it has forced the monster to emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my theory is that Michael Weston is not as woke as he thinks he is. I think that's probably accurate. It's also <laughs> like telling that uh, this episode, spoilers, we get to see the version of what Michael Weston thinks weak masculinity looks like. Let's get to that when we get to that, because I'm yeah. not 100% sure I know what that means. So uh, we we will get to it and more. Uh, but first, the IMDb description, uh, which reads, An early client of Michael's returns with a new job for him, which will disrupt Fee's social life and spark Madeline's, and the search for the buyer of the sniper rifle turns dangerous. Mm. Danger, you say? Good- in danger that's a pretty good description all things considered the one that disrupts fee's social life and sparks madeline's uh yeah all right so let's let's start in the beginning uh let's get into the weeds into the weeds that's right i forgot we'd call it into the weeds we go (laughs) (laughs) i'm dying chris i'm actually dying physically from this plane do you think that it's wise to include your will in this episode Um, just to get it out there what are you leaving me is that considered legal tender like if i record i don't think it's considered legal tender (laughs) i think bills are the wrong word clearly yeah 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 you could have just stopped at legal binding i i what i meant was binding legally binding is what i was looking for and tender was the thing that came to mind first is Um, that considered chicken tenders Okay, so that's enough of this bit. Um, <laughs> the bit tenders. is over. Can you leave me chicken tenders in your will? I will leave you chicken tenders in my will. Yes! I will no. What I'll do is I'll leave you. I'll leave you a chef who will make you chicken tenders. I love it. What you What you don't know is that the chef will poison them, so you will also be dead. Because truly, the culmination of my will is that Chris Cherry must die as soon after me as possible, so we can hold hands to go into hell together. Of course. <laughs> I gotta have a contingency plan. I'm not going alone. And Quinn's not going with you. <laughs> and Quinn's not going with me. No, no, no. He's going in the other direction, and I would feel a little bit bad about dragging him down. Oh boy. You like <laughs> Quinn so... too much to like damn him to hell. Exactly, but I you don't, don't have that you. problem with me. Well, but also you're already going there, so like that's true. You know, all I'm really doing is getting you there faster. Uh-huh. And isn't that what guys like? Finishing yeah. early? Oh, boy. What happens this week? 
Okay, so we start off with Michael and Fee uh, in the middle of fuck all, waiting for a guy named Seymour, who is Fiona's arms dealer friend and who is described as a little eccentric. He looks uh, like also, skinny Peter Jackson. He does look like skinny Peter Jackson. He's a character actor, not Peter oh, Jackson. Yeah. Well, Peter Jackson could be. Um, but I don't know what I recognize him from. Yeah, I've definitely oh, I seen just, him in things. I've just discovered that I spelled Seymour wrong in every part of my recap. So um, buckle up, I guess. Ooh, <laughs> this actor says his name is Silas Weir Mitchell, and he's also from Prison Break. How exciting for me. I should rewatch Prison Break. I mean, that's what we're going to do as a podcast after this podcast. Listen, Chris, I know you're joking, but I was also joking about doing a Burn Notice podcast. So listen. I will 100% do a Prison Break uh, podcast with you. If I'm going to make this happen, I should pick a better show. No, it's a great show. This is our thing. We pick mediocre action dramas. Oh, boy. Uh, Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, nothing is in me. He's just been in a bunch of, like, random stuff. He was was apparently a main character in Grimm. If that's your steez. Oh, shit. I remember that. I, like, watched, like, two episodes of Grimm, but he was in it. Uh, his name was Monroe in Grimm. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Oh, he was also in a short called Sammy's Cock. Oh, that's where I know I'm from. Yeah, see, I, I knew I would get there eventually. Anyway, so Seymour uh, is a little bit eccentric. And while they're waiting for Seymour, and Michael's very annoyed that they're meeting him somewhere, like, kind of out of the way. Uh, which is crazy because he's a spy and, like, every meeting he has is out of the way. Michael, don't you know that spycraft is boring? Yeah, haven't you told us that, like, eight times at this point? Uh, but anyways, uh, to keep things interesting while they're waiting, Fiona is texting with a boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael asks no follow-up questions. and But he just stares offers... at her creepily. Yeah, he, he just kind of, like, silently weeps, but, like, super stoically. I have a note in my notes that's just, Jesus, male gaze. And it's not the last time <laughs> it will be in my notes for this episode. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of, uh, of male gaze. Uh, but no male and gaze. And not enough male gaze. Yes, mm. exactly. I'm glad we both got there at the same time. Yeah. So the reason that they're meeting with uh, eccentric Seymour is that Michael wants details in that big fuck off gun that he helped steal in the last episode. Um, that makes no sense that he was there to steal it because it gave him way too much information and Carla is bad at her job is all that I'm saying. And um, they, they're, since Seymour is like a pretty good arms dealer, they're hoping that he can get them information either about where Carla might have like stolen it from or purchased it from or like where it's going to get, I don't know, serviced or something. Basically, he's just looking for information about this particular gun because apparently it's a very special boy gun. Uh, and, you know, they're the more that they learn about it, the more that they'll have on whatever is happening. But when Seymour gets there, it turns out that the reason that Seymour has driven them to the middle of nowhere is he actually has a different deal to take care of where he is doing some sort of deal with some Bulgarians and uh, they, the Bulgarians don't want to give him the money that he wants. And Michael is there as muscle. But he doesn't and tell so, Michael this. No, he doesn't. He basically just like, hey, Michael, come walk with me on the beach and we'll talk about your problem. And he walks up to into a different deal. Like he leads Michael into the second deal without telling him. And Michael and just then, kind of stands there like, this is normal. I mean, what else is he going to do? 
<laughs> like blow up his spot. Like that's not going to endear him. Seymour's eccentric. What are you going to do? But yeah, it, like it, I feel like uh, Seymour gains nothing from not. I mean, I guess Michael would say no. He does hate work. Yeah, Michael hates doing work. So it's like, a well documented fact him. that Michael Weston does not want a job. Except for one particular job that doesn't want him anymore. So, of course, it only makes him want it more. Because that's how toxic masculinity works, is that you want things you can't have, and then you get, like, obsessively fixated on that thing that you can't have until all of the other relationships in your life fall by the wayside, and the thing that you want the most drifts even further out of reach. And then you just, like, ogle women. Yeah. And control (laughs) their sexuality. Exactly. So... Um, anyways, something that, uh, was noteworthy at the beginning of the episode that sort of gets explained later is that Seymour gets to this gun meet, this, like, meet up with Michael with a bodyguard. Do you ever what Seymour's last name is? No. Okay, so it's Butts. Yeah, no, for sure it's Butts. Um, and he, <laughs> Seymour Butts has a sidekick name that he only refers to as Jackass, who is his bodyguard, ostensibly, but he leaves the bodyguard behind with Fiona to walk off on the beach with Michael to trick Michael into being his muscle, which is sort of explained later, but it does not make sense to me. No, it doesn't. (laughs) This is, like, once again, people are using Michael to work jobs that he is fully overqualified for and that, like, they would be better off having someone else do. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, so the Bulgarians start shooting. Michael fights off one of them, but everyone has to drive away. So he does not get the information out of Seymour. It's, you know, very eccentric, et cetera, et cetera. Cold open over. So essentially we learn nothing except for the fact that Seymour is crazy um, and has used Michael. Oh, and also I guess we learn that Fiona is dating. So those are are the two nuggets we get out of the cold open. Did we get his name yet? No, we don't get his name until next week. Yeah, no, we don't get the the guy's name until uh yeah next week's episode. Um, the guy that specifically the guy that Fiona is seeing. Yeah. Is it just me or did Jeffrey Donovan sound really tired reading the spy tips this week? <laughs> or at least in this opening, he just sound like, yeah, you know, sometimes when you gotta run away, you gotta do spy stuff. But you know, yeah. Coffee. I don't. I didn't notice that, but I I was taking notes. It makes it hard to enjoy the episode. So like this I wasn't. I don't think I was paying attention to the intonation of his spy tips. I will say. So, anyways, post cold open, we find Sam and Madeline's boyfriend slash familiar ex seal Virgil drinking beers in Michael's apartment. Uh, and he has a new job for them. Turns out, an old repo partner of Virgil's who has since deceased been deceased, become deceased, has since died. Uh, his, his dead friend has a daughter who runs a medical relief agency whose medical stocks recently got stolen on their way to like a delivery and they need some backup to figure out what happened to the meds and how they can get them back. Uh, of course, Michael doesn't want to do this uh, until he is convinced through like basic empathy. Yeah. Then Virgil goes to call Madeline. Uh, and just so everyone remembers, if you don't remember ex-seal buddy Virgil, this was, he was from the Piss Money episode where he was a repo man who got caught between two like rival gangs trying to get at a bunch of money that was stored in a boat. And he developed a romance with Madeline. Yeah, because they stashed That's him at is. Madeline's like they always do. And the two exactly. of them made the beast with two backs. 
<laughs> they bumped it real good. I do have, I have in my notes, uh, Virgil is back. And then later, Virgil is back for Dat Madeline ass. Hell yeah, he is. Get it, brother. So uh, speaking of, Virgil is going to call Madeline and be like, oh, this is awesome. So Madeline actually mentioned that I could stay with her while I'm in town. So I'm going to give her a call. Your mom is so hot, by the way. He didn't say quite that, but he said something like basically that amounted to that. He said that, but like in in baby boomer talk. (laughs) She's magnetic. A real stunner. And, what do you uh, think? What do you think baby boomers were alive? I don't know. So long ago, like from the twenties. <laughs> Who can say? Generations are made up. Anyways, Michael immediately intervenes and does not let Virgil call Madeline and says, uh, no, you'll be staying here and you will not see my mother the entire time you are in town. You will tell her that something came up and you will give her a call when you get back to the Bahamas where you belong. Um, <clears throat> his sort of reasoning here is like, you. the last time Virgil was in town, he put Madeline in danger like, on multiple occasions and uh, has been proven to have bad decision-making, which fair enough. But also Madeline is an adult woman with a criminal and a spy as sons who are both always using her house as a stash point. So maybe the pot should back off the kettle a little bit. Another reason that this episode is definitely fan service is that, oh my God, what's his brother's name? What? What's his brother's name? Nate. Nate. Another reason that this episode is fan service is Nate is not in it. <laughs> no, he is not. Although the Nate episode that we had a couple of weeks ago was actually like very good. Yeah. I think we rated it a, I don't know if we rated it a great episode of television, but we, we really enjoyed it. It was, that was the one with uh, Sergey. That is true. The Sergey episode was great. Nate was yeah. there. That Nate didn't add anything, but the fact that he was in it and it wasn't a terrible episode is points in his favor. True. Anyways, so Michael has forbidden contact between two old people and everyone's a little miffed, but Michael Weston gets his way. Mm. So they go meet the client at her relief agency. Her name is Marcella, but ultimately she influences the plot exactly 0%. Really, the client is Virgil. Marcella is just like, the vehicle for the case of the week. But like, I don't think she has any defining characteristics other than like, is a woman who runs a medical relief agency and needs these drugs. She's in like two other scenes total and contributes nothing. She is pretty and she cares for children like a woman should. Yeah, exactly. Like, (laughs) yeah, she, she has like even less to do than like clients mothers in past episodes. So like, You can remember her name is Marcella if you want, but ultimately it does not matter. So what happened is that her relief agency recently like got a bunch of donations and sent like a million dollars worth of antivirals to, I think she says Rio, um, but I'm not fully sure. They sent a bunch of antivirals to somewhere, but before it like left the country, um, some people got onto the freight and stole all of the stock. So she needs it back because that's a lot of medicine and it needs to go to deserving people because charity and whatnot. Uh, They need some relief. 
So mm, that's the end of that scene. Basically, that's the scene that's like, this is what the episode's about. Michael goes to his mom's house to like help her move a box, I guess. And she asking after Virgil in a way that indicates she knows he's in town and she knows Michael is keeping them apart. Uh, but before they can really go deep into that conversation, uh, Sam calls and is like, hey, Mike, we got to go to Boca because that's that's going to be the lead on uh, the stolen drugs. So uh, I figure you and I will go to Boca. Virgil's going to stay in town, see some old friends. And Michael's like, I think that Virgil and I should go to Boca and you should hang out in town. And then you should Sam's see some like, old friends. <laughs> yeah, you should see some old friends. Huh, Sam? And then Sam hands the phone over to Virgil. He's like, oh, okay, well, Virgil wants to talk to you. And there is no mention of the fact that Michael has just changed the plan. Virgil's like, fine, I guess I'll go with Michael. Also, Michael, I didn't pack enough underwear, so I'm wearing your pair. And um, Mike, Michael gets so intense so fast about this underwear invasion. And Virgil makes a comment about how they're a little tight down under, but they'll work, which is just delightful. Uh-huh. So that happens. Someone's married. So Michael has little shirts and little underwear <laughs> that have now both been stretched out by these big old men. Yeah. With with their big old penises. <laughs> uh, at this point, I think they have bigger balls than they do penises. True. That's a thing, right? When men age, their balls get bigger. You know, I'm very young, so I wouldn't know. You're not that young. I am a sprightly young thing. You are creeping ever closer to death, my friend. Aren't we all? Virgil certainly is. So Michael and Virgil, presumably still wearing Michael's panties, uh, go to Boca and stake out a known buyer of illegal pharmaceuticals whose name is Feldman, while Michael eats a Cold Stone ice cream cup with the logo lovingly camera facing and a branded cart just behind them. So I guess that's why this episode got to be so wet and wild is because Cold Stone gave them some money. Ooh. They eat so much on this show. They do eat. I feel like uh, although they interestingly, eat more no one than they eat on Psych. Even though Psych <laughs> talks about food all the time. That's true. Although in this episode, notably, no one has mentioned who is paying for food at any point. I so, we might get that no, later. I don't know. Notable difference in strategy is all I'm saying. Um, so like they're they're basically they're staking out like this pharmaceutical buyers like front business which is like a golf store and taking pictures of everyone who comes out of the golf store uh for later blackmail uh they talk a little bit virgil tries to talk to michael about madelson madelson jesus christ tonight i am not doing well with my words uh virgil tries to talk to michael about his mom but it's a no-go so they head into feldman's golf store front to quote raise some hell when they get into feldman's shop they immediately cut to the chase about the stolen drugs while feldman tries to deny it and what i like about feldman is he looks like his name is feldman he really does like, like that that is some dynamite casting right there if you're imagining what feldman looks like in your brain you're right <laughs> so uh as michael is like shaking him down virgil i think like puts a golf ball into some frosted glass and from behind the frosted glass cascades a bunch of pill bottles. And Feldman's like, all right, all right. Clearly those aren't golf balls. So uh, yes, I'm in pharmaceuticals, but I mostly work with like, you know, uh, Viagra and um, and tranquilizers, you know, like rich guy date rape kits. And he's Ooh. like, somebody's coming in here with like antivirals. I don't got anything for that like you can't date rape a woman with antiviral so i sent him packing uh and michael gets you know 
as much information out of him as he has, and then they leave. Sam and Michael debrief uh, at the loft, but at this like really pretty exterior of the loft. Maybe it's right. The, it's like a, so there's, pretty. So there's a balcony somewhere in Michael's loft, but like they're by a tree and there's like stairs. So I'm not actually sure where they are outside of the loft. Like they're looking in on the loft as like Virgil is sleeping on Michael's bed. Um, but like Sam and Michael are like outside and there's this pretty tree and it's like really nice framing and yeah, Sam like is sitting Sam's on some sitting stairs. On the sta- yeah, it's so good. I yeah, I have that in my notes too. Where like, is that? Where is that in the idea. loft? I've never seen this. It's the golden hour balcony. I don't know. It was a very pretty shot. Well done. Uh, Chechik. Jeremiah Chechik did a good job. Um, they debrief. And Michael, all all that they do in this is debrief about exposition. And Michael complains about Virgil again. Uh, then Michael goes to meet Seymour once more. And we, we, we learn uh, somewhat why Michael was used as a meat shield at their last meet cute. And it's because, quote, Seymour's bodyguard is useless. Which begs the question, why he is his bodyguard? If you have a bodyguard that can't handle a basic, like, gun trade off when you're an arms dealer, maybe get a different bodyguard. To be fair, Seymour is an idiot. I mean, Seymour is an idiot, but he's smart enough to recognize that his bo- the one job his bodyguard needs to do, he is incapable of doing, and therefore he needs Michael Weston. So maybe just, like, he's a, dr- he's a gun runner and allegedly quite, like, popular at that. Like, Fiona has used him multiple times. Why can this guy not find a muscle man who he can trust. We're all just trying to find the muscle man that we can trust. The muscle man who lives on Drury Lane? Yes. I don't know. I find this explanation lacking. But uh, as Michael... So Michael gets into Seymour's car and another car drives up kind of near them. And Seymour's like, hey, can you wave at that guy in the car? And Michael looks up and it's like the Bulgarian again who shot at them. And he's like... And Michael's like, are you kidding me? And then the Bulgarian starts shooting at them, and Seymour's like, shit, I thought he was going to bring me the money this time, and then they drive away. Well, though, they don't drive... Okay, Michael, like, nopes right out of that car, and it's oh, so Oh, I thought good. he ducked into it. I think I might have, uh, I, I, like, switched to a different tab. I wasn't sure. I got the impression that he just got out of the car. <laughs> if that's the case, that's much funnier. I thought he, like, ducked down. But now that, like, you mentioned that, the way that he talked about it, kind of does sound like he just ducked out of the car. Yeah, no, it's just like, no, I'm leaving. I mean, just fair like, enough. So once again, we have a scene with Seymour where he does something crazy, but no information is passed along. So like the story does not move at all here. Every time we've met Seymour, we have learned nothing. It's funny too, because when this episode started, I kind of thought that like Seymour was actually going to be the main plot. Like, oh, no. it was going to be a situation like, help, of- help Seymour with his problem so that he'll get information for Michael's yeah. problem. Yeah, no. There was a lot going on in this episode. It was a chock-full episode. But actually, like, really surprisingly well-paced, because usually when Burn Notice episodes have a lot going on, they things get lost. But I felt like this had a really good build. And, like, it, it felt... Especially once we get to the main case, which we're about to, like, I felt like the tension genuinely ratcheted up at every stage and, like, forced them to iterate on their plan. Um, and, like, and I thought that... What I really liked about this episode, honestly, and we haven't even met the guy, like the the big bad guy of the week. Uh, I thought that he was like the smartest criminal that we've worked with in a while. Like his plan actually genuinely makes sense. And like 
the the things that are raising the stakes is not like stupidity or whatever. It's like him genuinely being good at his crime job. Uh, and I enjoyed that. I like seeing them actually have a challenge for once. That Yeah, that's definitely true. I agree. Because like anytime they were like, all right, this is how we're going to exploit this dude's operation. It turns out he's already one step ahead of them. And so even if like he sort of suspects the gang of like messing around with him, um, he always has like a second plan, which is so unheard of in the burn notice universe it's usually like michael mentions that something is going wrong and they're like you're right we should change everything here have all of my money this guy feels like the better version of what the guy from the season one finale should have been yeah i agree he feels like someone who's watched burn notice and is like okay i've learned some things yeah. He's someone who is aware of how things work in this universe uh, and is actively making plans against it. So uh, speaking of, one thing that the Michael and Virgil learned back at the golf shop is that the guy that they're looking for's name is Gerard. Gerard is a big, scary psycho who steals drugs and other things. Yeah. So they, drugs and drug they figure out... Yes, exactly. So they send Chuck Finley to go meet Gerard. And another bit of fan service. We get a Chuck Finley. Love me some Chuck. So um, this is something. So it's mentioned in the spy voiceover, which I'm not going to go over because it wasn't a practical tip. But there was a spy voiceover thing about how like party culture is important for criminals because it like keeps morale up, but also keeps people spending money so that they're hungry for the next job. But like it kind of seemed like they were just in someone's backyard. Are they at a bar? It's no. like an entirely exterior sort of thing. It's like, like a party. There is... It's just right, a party. But, like, it's... but the and the implication from the voiceover is that like, and, the, and there is a bar and like a bartender at this shindig. And the implication is that the party is to get like the criminals to blow what they just like made in a job on like booze and women so that when the next job comes around, like they're broke again and they like need to stay in the system. Yeah. So he doesn't have, Gerard does not have an open bar at his own parties. Got it. So he hires a bartender and like catering, but like makes them pay for it. Is that the implication? Cause I was very unclear at the like logic of how this party is working. It's possible that the tip is more general than the situation. But like in general, it's, it's a just good like, idea to keep it's your guys. It's a very party. well set up background. Like it's like a, it's not even a backyard though. There's like a dirt road next to them that people are like driving up to. It's like some sort of like place in the woods. I don't know. What's amazing to me about this party is that it never seems to end. I feel like multiple days go by, and like Chuck and like Michael, they keep going to this like party, and it just. It's still happening. Yeah, every single time they go back, he's always having a party. I mean, because it's a part of the criminal subculture, Chris. The spy voiceover told us that criminals love throwing parties. But the thing of it is, is that, like, it doesn't even seem like a different party. It seems like the same party. And I know that's because they shot all of these scenes on one day. But, like, they made no effort to make it look like it was a different party happening or anything was different. Every It just seems like a weird sort of like Bacchanal. It feels like Burning Man. 
<laughs> is what it feels like. And especially since, like, later we go to see, like, Seymour and he's also kind of having a party. It just seems like there's something about this episode that just feels, like, really, like, party-like and very kind of, I don't even know the word for it, hedonistic. There's something very hedonistic about this episode. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that is a good word for it. You're absolutely right. Too bad we don't have more epic poet names for all of our characters. Yes, it would feel very at home. Uh, but yeah, so Charles Finley goes to a party and he meets Gerard. This Finley alias is apparently a, a general store of illegal goods. He sells guns so people can shoot each other and medicine to get them ready for round two. This is this line is important, so remember it. Uh, I've already forgotten it. What's the line? <laughs> so Chuck is like, I hear you got some good drugs. I would love them. And Gerard's like, oh, that's that's too bad. It's really bad timing on your part. Uh, I've actually already sold the antivirals and I'm delivering them next week. So sorry. And Chuck's like, oh, that's too bad. Are you sure I can't unbuy them and buy them again? And Gerard's like, no, no, no. I, I've already made a commitment. Like, sorry, dude. And then a bar fight breaks out. And to um, make sure that this whole gambit wasn't a loss, Chuck Finley, like, cracks a beer bottle over someone's head, like, to help out Gerard so that Gerard well, actually, knows that he's... Well, con- actually, what happens is a guy with a cracked beer bottle is going, I assume, to stab Gerard? Because, like, Sam, like, knocks the guy out and takes away his beer bottle. Oh, is that what happened? See, once again, I, I had, like gone to a different tab to take notes and when i came back he was holding a broken beer bottle and so i made some assumptions well when you make an assumption it makes an ass out of you an umption in any case charles finley assists in a bar fight and uh gerard is endeared to him they didn't get the antivirals but they at least have an in with our with our new friend crazy gerard Everyone knows a crazy Gerard. So yeah. we debrief with Marcella and Virgil back at the loft. There is uh, our first yogurt sighting in two episodes. So I'm very excited. Uh, that could be the other reason why there's so much like blatant yogurt placement in this episode is that we have had two no-gurts in a row, which mm-hmm. is unacceptable per notice. Do better. But they decide. Especially in an episode where Coldstone is trying to encroach. <laughs> yeah, well, at first, before I saw the Coldstone logo, I thought that maybe he was eating frozen yogurt and that that could be like a nice tie in. Like that like Michael's you... whole brand is just yogurt. He drink, he eats frozen yogurt as a treat and regular yogurt as his actual like meal. So you thought it was Froyo, but that was a no no? <sighs> so now that there's this new wrinkle in their plan, their new plan is that they need to get Michael onto Gerard's crew. And they start brainstorming ideas for, like, how to do that when Madeline knocks on the door and Michael tells Virgil to make himself scarce. Michael goes outside to see his mom and, like, closes the door behind him, like, oh, sorry, mom, I'm on my way out. Nothing to see here. And Madeline is holding a pie. And Michael is like, did you make me a pie? And she's like, well, no, but I put cinnamon on top. And basically it's like, I know Virgil's in there. And Michael's like, I don't know. Virgil who? What? Thanks for the pie. And Madeline's like, ugh, fine. And like slams the pie at him and leaves. If I were her, I would have kept the pie. I know, right? Like, it was clearly just like a store-bought pie or whatever. But like, I don't know if it's just that like, I'm hungry, but the pie looked delicious. Yeah, I don't even know what kind of pie it was. 
She did add cinnamon. And I, and I know how that's you my feel kryptonite. About cinnamon. Yes. No, not my kryptonite. My other thing. I mean, I'm powerless You're... against cinnamon. We all <laughs> know. Technically, that is kryptonite, but you mean it in a different way. Is there yeah. a thing that, like, gets Superman super hot and heavy? Is it your lowest lane? <laughs> is cinnamon your Disney. lowest lane? Uh, maybe it's red kryptonite. I know red kryptonite does something different. Like, there's different Well, there's also, like, of lilac kryptonite and periwinkle kryptonite there's all sorts of goddamn kryptonite there's a whole steven universe of kryptonite so it's another seymour scene fee and michael go to seymour's house where he is also having a party because apparently it's just like party season in the criminal world um but first as they walk in they have to talk about michael's cock blocking of his mom and fee tries to connect like his insecurity about his mom getting some to uh, the insecurity over Fiona seeing someone new because she references the fact that he didn't ask any follow-up questions and is actively trying to avoid the conversation about the fact that she's dating, which, like, she's right, but also, like, not asking questions isn't the strangest reaction to have. Like, when your ex starts seeing someone new, why would you want to talk to them about it? Exactly. Like, it seems reasonable to not need extra information. Yeah, no, like, yeah, that's... Yeah, that was a weird thing on her part. I mean, but it's not. Because here's the thing. It's like, and this happens next, like, in the next few episodes, because we get to see a little bit more of Fiona's boy toy in the next few episodes. Uh, now that now that there's no Veronica, we need uh, man candy for Fee. The sidekicks always have to be dating someone in order for things to be exciting. But, like, everything that Fee does is explicitly positioned to make Michael uncomfortable and confront the fact that he actually wants her back. So, like, I think that Fiona's just pastoring him. Because like oh, 100%. she wants to be jealous. Fiona yeah, does no, not definitely. want to move on, and so everything she is doing, even though like textually it makes no sense, like is done with the express purpose of getting Michael back. So yes. even though it doesn't, like she is being unreasonable for saying, "Why aren't you asking questions about my new boyfriend?" It's because she wants him to ask questions because she wants Michael to want her. Of course, I will so. also point out that this second party, this party is when I once again wrote the note, Jesus, male gaze. Yeah, so this is a thing. Now that we're on, like, party number three or whatever, um, this is the third scene that prominently features, like, out-of-context B-roll shots of women's breasts. We The first scene was, weirdly, Michael and Virgil uh, scoping out um, the golf shop, like, when, when Michael was eating Cold Stone ice cream. Michael was eating Coldstone, and, like, to, I guess, transition us to Boca, where they were, like, taking these photos, there's, like, a lot of, like, close-up shots of women's boobs, like, wandering around Boca. Then the mm, second time cold is... Coldstone uh, and hot ladies. Yeah. The second time was Ger- uh, Crazy Gerard's party, where, of course, there were lots of women present to, like, dance for the, the, the crime guys. Uh, this is the third time. This is now, this is a boobs and gun packing party. Cause like, there's a couple of shots of guys like packing up guns into crates, but also shots of like a woman's ass walking by this, which is a very bizarre theme for a party. Uh, seems very unsafe, but okay. Um, but yeah, there's like, there's a lot of shots in this episode of women's asses and boobs for like no reason. And like over and over again, like it's It's one thing when it's like, you're on the beach and you're transitioning, but like for every single scene <laughs> to be like focused around just random B-roll shots, it's like, we get it. There are women at these parties. It's excessive in the way the show hasn't been about it since like early season one. 
Yeah. Yeah, it really is reminiscent of like, yeah, those early seasons where like we would transition from one butt to another. Yeah, it's a lot. I will say, I do kind of appreciate that how distinct Seymour's party is from Gerard's party. Like, Seymour's party is clearly a very classy, richy, rich party. Yeah, there's a lot fewer people. There's not quite so much, like, jumping around in, like, white trash clothes. Everyone looks clean at um, Seymour's party. Whereas at Gerard's party, like, everyone looks like they have not washed in days. Because they haven't. Because they are still at this party. Yeah, yeah, it's... it's, it's, it's it looks, boys. like, post-apocalyptic. <laughs> it kind of does. It, it is a very, very different vibe. It's like a Mad Max party. Yeah, it does. So anyway, so they're at Seymour's rich boy party. And once again, nothing happens. Uh, Seymour offers them smoothies. They are rejected. All that occurs in the scene is that Seymour has forgotten why Michael wants to talk to him. Uh, but the Bulgarians paid up. So that's good. Seymour tries to give him a big stack of money and Michael throws it back at him. Like, we're not working together. Just give me the information. And Seymour's like, oh, what information did you need again? Which, two things here. It's so funny. You can't give Michael money. You can't. You cannot? Why not? He will, I mean, I guess he kept the pie, which is something. But like, yeah, Michael, you are so broke. You have to be broke. Your lifestyle does not make sense. Just take the money. Literally, like, he throws, he throws a giant roll of money at Michael and he just throws it back. It bounces off him. Because he's principled. Like, like bullets off Superman. (laughs) Who has not yet found his kryptonite, which is yogurt. (laughs) And sad women. And sad women. Um... Yeah, so Michael's like, this is the information I need. Please get information about this sniper rifle. I do not want to buy a sniper rifle. Someone has already bought a sniper rifle, and I want to learn about them. And Seymour's like, uh, fine. And then they leave. (laughs) So this is the third Seymour scene we've had. And all that these scenes accomplish is that Seymour is crazy, and Michael has not gotten the information that he wants. Um, Although, here's the thing. I kind of appreciate the fact that all of the Seymour scenes until the very final one are completely useless and almost entirely, like, comedy fuel because it makes the, like, final scene a little bit more interesting. But, like... I agree. It is funny that we waste so much time and presumably production money on, like, these very elaborate Seymour scenes with car chases and explosions and gunfights and boobs, (laughs) and literally nothing happens. But the thing is... They don't feel extraneous. Like, I'm never, like, watching them and being like, why are we spending time on this? Because they're, like, fun. Because there's been a lot of times on this show where, like, we're watching a thing that doesn't need to happen. And I'm like, why are we watching this? Whereas, like, I never had that problem because this episode is so well-paced. Yeah, it's I, I, I can't even explain it because like in some ways the structure is very similar to other episodes we've seen. It's just, I don't know, I think it's like the light like logical connections are stronger in the main plot and this like B plot with Seymour is just so much fun that like they work well off of each other. Because, like, the Seymour plot is really simple. Michael wants inter- information, and he is not getting it. And then the B, the the A plot, the, like, case of the week, is very complicated because there's, like, a lot of moving parts uh, and things keep going wrong. And I think that that kind of – I think that balances out well. And I think that's kind of what worked in its favor. Agreed. We, we head back to Gerard's party house where it's been, like, a day or two. The party is still going. And uh, Chuck – 
offers him a partnership on an opportunity to steal some like unrelated expensive drugs from a yacht that Virgil being a guy who gets boats, I guess will be providing that like there was a yacht mentioned in an earlier scene, but it didn't feel worth noting until it got brought up here again. Um, after some back and forth, Gerard agrees to go into business with Chuck Finley. He does seem reputable. Of course he's Chuck Finley. Um, Chuck Finley. And- he saved his life. Kind of maybe. uh he will he will do this with chuck uh in exchange for half the take and that's when chuck lays the groundwork for the infiltration these particular drugs that he's going to be stealing are super high end but that means that there is like some very particular things about them like their storage and whatnot that they're going to need like an expert for because they're quote steroids on steroids Yeah, you have to keep them at the right temperature and humidity. And, like, there's all these factors that they need to take care of. So they need, like, someone from the lab that they're stealing the drugs from. And this someone is someone named Jackson. We learn that Jackson is a former meth cooker who now designs steroids for this company. And he will need some convincing to be brought on board. So I really liked this setup because this is one of the first times that, like, They've done the one-two punch of somebody goes in, introduces Michael to the bad guy, and, like, lets Michael take it from there. Usually what happens is that they're like, you have to use this guy. He, you know, I'll come in and have him meet you soon. It's like, I know of a guy that you need to talk to, but he's not going to want to do it. Yeah. I thought that was a really fun setup. Uh, It allowed for a more interesting, like, meet-cute between the bad guy and Michael's new alias. Um, And I also think that it makes more sense in a lot of ways uh, because, like, whenever you meet someone for the first time and the first thing they do is introduce you to a second person you've met for the first time and both of those people are, like, perfectly suited for, like, this job, it feels like a setup. But when, like, when they say, you're stealing from this company, there's a guy in the company I think is a, you know, uh, a shaky link. I think you can get to him, but, like, that's your problem. Like, you need this person, but I have no connection to them. So, like, good luck, I guess. I don't know. I yeah, just I thought that much, was clever. I agree. It's much it's much more believable for Gerard. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of those examples because like Michael's always harping on in the spy tips about like you got to make the bad guy think they're working for it. But like I feel like this is one of the first times that I felt that that has actually worked out and like in a way that I would be convinced by. Yes. Uh, and as you know, I am a drug kingpin, so you know, this shit doesn't doesn't go over my head easily. We cut to exterior like warehouse or lab, like wherever they've set up this fake company with these fake steroids on steroids becoming. Uh, exiting Would it from have been funnier the lab. if it was steroids on crack? <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of punch-ups that we could have done to yeah. the description of the drugs, but that's neither here nor there. Yes. Coming out of this building, this like warehouse or lab or something, is a hunched and extremely derpy looking Michael Weston, a.k.a. Jackson, our former meth dealer, who uh, has all of his hair combed forward and like gelled. Like uh, he looks like markedly younger than he usually does. And he's like hunched and his like arms are kind of out to he's his side. He's trying to give like himself a- bangs. Yeah, it's extremely good. It's the best Michael Weston look I've seen in a long time. It's great. I will say, like, again, it's sort of telling, like, this episode definitely is a very specific idea of masculinity. And it's sort of telling, because, like, in the spy tip, Michael's going on about, like, how sometimes you need to, like, seem weaker so they seem, like, stronger. And so, like, the character he's chosen to play is the most nebbishy, urkel guy 
Like, he has an inhaler. He didn't need an inhaler. He's like, Yeah, the inhaler is a very fun, like, just completely unnecessary detail. This is like what a nerd looks like to people who have never met a nerd. Exactly. I do sometimes get the sense that Michael Weston really wanted to be an actor. (laughs) But he had to join the military instead. Because he cares about, like, selling these characters so much. And, like, and I get, like, that that's, you're a spy, you're supposed to sell the character. But, like, he cares so much about the character being consistent. But, like, he'll do dumb shit. Like, get an inhaler. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, it's very good. So, basically, the scene is, like... Michael walks out like all hunched over and kind of hobbling and then he looks up and there's a bunch of men with guns that are coming towards him and he just like the shot is from behind Michael as he's walking he sees all these guys coming for him and he turns around and immediately starts running but he starts running in that way where like his elbows are locked so he's like swinging his arms at full length on his sides as he runs away with this like insane look on his face it's so funny it's just you've got to just like watch him running away from the goons moment. If you do not watch anything else in this episode, you have to watch this moment. It is just so strange and funny and like very like different from his other aliases. Even his other sort of dumb aliases, like this is a distinct kind of alias and he plays it so straight and it's so funny. The thing about, yeah, like the thing about Michael's aliases generally is that like they're always people who like, even when they're dumb, are trying to get the upper hand or want the upper hand. Or, like, even when he was Gomer. Was it Gomer? I think it was Gomer. Or Homer. Uh, Even when he was Homer, like, he was, like, dumb. But, like, the thing about Homer was that he was secretly wise. Whereas I feel like Michael truly has a disdain for Jackson. Yeah, it's true. But, like... His playing of him is so delicious that, like, it is. I had to just put all of my toxic masculinity opinions to the side because it's just so funny. Oh, just... no, I agree. I think it's hysterical. Jeffrey Donovan is killing it. He And he is having such a good time, and you can tell. And I love that about him. So uh, Jackson is, like, thrown up against a wall and beat up a little bit. Um, he, you know, uses his inhaler, uh, has a lot of very, like, distressed no thank yous to the proposition of helping with this theft. But eventually he is a small man and they are many big mans and he is convinced. Um, I also noticed that the shirt that they put Jackson in, it's like a it's like a short sleeve uh, button up, but the sleeves are pretty long and it's like a bigger shirt than Michael usually wears. So it's hiding his muscles because I kept trying to like find a shot where you can see that Jackson is like crazy ripped, but you can't because they've put him in a very particular shirt. And so I just thought that that was some good uh, wardrobe design on Michael Weston's part, that he knew how to pick a shirt that made him look less physically imposing than he is in actuality. Do you think he's wearing one of Sam's shirts in a reversal? Yes, that was what I was thinking. (laughs) Honestly, it looks like a shirt that Sam would wear. So, like, I would not put that. Or, oh, oh, no, better yet, one of Virgil's shirts. (laughs) Because remember, like, in season season one, when, like, um, Madeline buys him a shirt? It's like, oh, this is such a nice shirt. It looks like she got it at Target. (laughs) Yeah. So, Jackson... And Gerard 
uh, Michael and Gerard stake out the yacht the next day. The yacht that apparently is how they're transporting the drugs. I don't know. The yacht is involved with this fake drugs heist. Uh, so they're staking it out. Michael is like telling him about all the security and is still trying to like distance himself from the job. And Gerard's like, no, no, no. Like, stop asking me questions. Like, you're going to be a part of it. And Jackson's like, okay, I used to do meth. And uh, as they're watching, uh, Virgil is also there. I replayed this scene again and like, he's not mentioned. So I guess he's just there to like keep an eye out. But he's not, it doesn't seem like either Gerard or Jackson think that Virgil is involved. Like, they're just sort of talking vaguely about, like, well, I, I thought, like, I thought board. that, like, Virgil was there to be, like, someone who's guarding the drugs or, like... Well, so eventually Virgil is the driver of the yacht, but exactly. they don't really reference him. But like later in the scene, he appears in the scene and Gerard says like, oh, the old man's got a girlfriend. And Michael looks up and Madeline has found Virgil at the docks. And Virgil, because he knows that, you know, he's being watched, he's like, Madeline, you have to leave. Like, I can't, I can't talk to you right now. And Madeline's, Madeline looks very hurt and walks away, which is like, I, I guess it's sad. But also Madeline knows Virgil is in town for a job. Like, that has been communicated and is, like, extremely obvious. And she knows that when all the boys are on a job, it's very dangerous. So if she finds him out in the wild, it's probably, like, going to get her in trouble. So him being like, Madeline, you have to leave, should not be a hurtful thing. It should be a, oh, sorry, are there gun guys around? My bad. Hey, does she know he's on the job? Because, like, I feel like at the end of the episode, she's like, oh, they told me what you were doing. But I feel like she has to know. Why else would he be oh. in town and why would he be around Michael? Why but would Virgil have also, come to Michael like, before Madeline? Madeline is so stupid. But that's like, the thing. Madeline, but she's like, selectively uh, stupid. Because in the next episode, she has some like pretty coherent shit that she's saying. But in as always, Madeline is the most inconsistent character on this show because sometimes she's super self-aware and like has her shit together and knows exactly what's happening. And other times she conveniently forgets like how everything in the world works. It's yeah. so irritating. Just pick a track. But they just, they, they need her there to like be a stereotypical mom. But the problem is that means she can't ever grow or learn or like think critically about things. Yes. But that's not know. really what this show does. No, it's really not. But anyway, so Madeline is sad and leaves. Uh, we go back to the party house at Gerard's and uh, Michael has been brought along this time. Lucky him. Uh, and Michael is still pestering Gerard with questions. Because like what they're trying to do is figure out where the drugs are being held so that they don't have to like actually fake a drug heist. Because they don't have drugs. They just have like a boat that they're telling this guy there's a bunch of drugs in. And they're hoping that they can get to the information prior to needing to rob a boat. Um, but Gerard's like, don't worry about it. Oh, by the way, we're going to hit the boat tomorrow and you're staying with us tonight. Like, you are not leaving our site. And so Michael calls his boss to call in sick. And specifically, he calls Fee, who's like, who is it's his not boss? a good time, Michael. Oh, yeah, who is his boss? Yes, for sure. And so Fee's like, it's not a good time, Michael. I'm going to a movie, implying she's going on a date. Uh, and he ref Michael refers to her as Boris, coughs a lot, and gives her like a code before he has to hang up. Uh, and then Fee calls Sam and is like, I'm going to miss my movie. Very upset. Um, then Fiona arrives at the party house and conveniently rear-ends Gerard in a very specific way that allows her to get like 
uh, a little bit of access to Michael in his car, like briefly, so that Michael can tell her like, hey, the job is on. We need to actually fake a drug heist. Tell everyone. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Then um, in this scene, um, like Michael explains that sometimes you have to rely on stereotypes. Like ladies are bad at driving. Yeah, we'll get to that tip later. But yeah, the, the the whole scene is predicated on like Fiona is hot and bad at driving. And so she can distract them without them thinking that they're being distracted because they're like, oh, well, she's abroad. Broads can't drive. So like <laughs> this must not be a setup at all. Oh, he, yeah, she's abroad. He talks like a real baby boomer. <laughs> I was waiting for that follow up. Fiona spies on Michael's new crew while Virgil and Sam have a little drug making montage. It's actually kind of cute because usually the montages that we get on the show are between uh, Fiona and Michael where they're all like sexy and like doing like bomb making together. But this time it's two old men. <laughs> <laughs> making yeah. fake drugs out of Mountain Dew, which is very charming and fun. And um, also we learn that they're going to have to uh, requisition Michael's fridge in order to like fake this very specialized drug containment sort of system. Uh, but first they have to find a home for all of his yogurt. <laughs> oh no, what are they going to do about all of Michael's yogurt? Then uh, Michael and Gerard and the gang approach the yacht, I guess the next day. Uh, and Michael is like, you, you guys had to give me a mask. Like now that you're bringing me along, like this guy on the boat is definitely going to recognize me. Like, please give me a mask. And Gerard's like, oh, no, it's no problem. He can tell it to the fishes, uh, which you I should also point out that mafia. they're going to the boat on a boat. This is all yeah, happening so at sea. Yeah, everything is happening at sea. They're briefly pirates. <laughs> yeah, so it's like there's a yacht that's transporting the fake drugs, and then there's like a little skipper that the everyone else is in to like rob the bigger boat. He ex- he says what play. it's called, but I've forgotten. I think I have it in my notes later. Um, but it's, it's two specific kinds of boats. They're in a boat. They're getting on a boat. So yeah. they get on the big boat on the yacht where Virgil is waiting, unaware that he is about to make some new scaly friends. Michael convinces Gerard to give him a gun and then whispers to Virgil to... To Virgil. To Virgil. To Virgil. Jesus So Michael convinces Gerard to give him a gun, whispers to Virgil to go with this, and then kind of just starts like vaguely yelling and brandishing a gun and then pretends to shoot Virgil and like tosses him over the edge. Um, and the voiceover explains that that Navy SEALs like are trained to hold their breath between like three to five minutes underwater. And for ex-Navy SEALs, it's probably closer to two minutes. So you just got to speed things up. Um, but also notable is that like Gerard is very excited that Jackson has made his first kill. Uh, quote, you've popped your cherry, which was a gross way to put it. Um, also like very in line with the kind of toxic masculine energy of this episode, but also he shot him at not even point blank range. He shot him like holding onto him. There would be blood all over him. And Michael's shirt is so clean. Yeah. There's no blood in the water. Yeah. There's There's no blood in the water. There's no blood on Michael's shirt. There's none on the boat. But Gerard is like, oh yeah, you pop that cherry, bro. And then everyone just goes back to their jobs and it's like, Maybe you're not as smart of a criminal as I thought you were. Anyways, they get back on shore. Virgil is fine. He held his breath like a champ. 
uh, and Fee and Sam tail the the van that they load the special drugs into back to their like storage space. So they finally found where these guys are keeping all of their stock. Michael goes in like to to store the drugs with the guys, spills a bunch of bullshit, like is trying to figure out like where the other drugs are. But it turns out that their sort of storage system is that they, they're essentially subletting a big like stock warehouse from another unrelated shipping company. And they have like spread out their stock all over the building so that even if somebody did follow them back to like their warehouse, it would be like nearly impossible, like needle in haystack to like find where all of their drugs actually are, which is very clever. Um, like I gotta say, Gerard is really impressing me here. Yeah. And so Michael's like, uh, I gotta go get some tools. And he goes out and he basically waves off Fee and Sam. Like we can't, come in guns blazing, like, we'll never find the drugs. So, uh, once again, foiled by Gerard being good at his job. Such a brand new feeling. I know. They actually have to work. God, this is bullshit. Uh, so, back at the loft, they discuss... Like, this, this is why problem. I don't do jobs. <laughs> jobs are jobs are a trick of the government, man. They're always like this. It sucks. Down with capitalism, etc. This is all conversation that can be heard at Gerard's party. <laughs> Man, jobs are bullshit. Gerard's party seems like a cult hangout. Yeah, it does. Because also, like, how do you sustain that level of energy, like, over and over and over again? Like, all they do is just, like, drink and, like, laugh and, like, look at girls without their shirts on. And it's like, doesn't that get old after a while? Like, I mean, what? drugs. I guess. I don't know. It just feels like they maintain the same energy night after night. And that is very impressive to me from a stamina perspective. Anyways, so uh, they're apologizing about the fridge and Sam hands Michael a yogurt from like a styrofoam box filled with ice that they've like replaced his fridge with. (laughs) And he's mad too. Like there's a back on the boat. There's this one quick shot. that's just Michael being annoyed that his fridge is in there. Yeah, he, like, he turns around to, like, like he, he starts to leave the boat after they've, like, stolen the fake drugs. Then, like, stops, turns around, sees his fridge, and just, like, is so upset. He's so angry about this fridge. He's still angry about the fridge, which, fair enough, now he doesn't have a fridge. And fridges are expensive. But, I mean, like, is the fridge gone? Why would the fridge be gone? It was on they the They didn't on sink the, the boat. boat. That's true. And Virgil was alive, and presumably that's how Virgil got back to shore, is he took yeah. the yacht back. No, that's yeah. That's a like, really good point, Chris. What happened to the fridge? Maybe they, like, fucked it up to, like, get it on the boat. Like, they, like, cut the cord or something. I assume they just haven't set it up yet. Because they have to put the Maybe. fridge back. It's probably still on the boat, and you got to move it, and it's, like, a hassle. We'll have to pay attention in the future episodes to see if it's the same brand of fridge or if they had to, like, fully replace it. Exactly. Uh Audience, we'll let you know about that. Not next week. <laughs> yeah, because we've already watched that episode and did not pay attention. No. Uh, but in two so, weeks, you'll know. In two weeks, maybe you'll know. Um, so Actually, basically, I have, to, I have new- to watch it again to get a screenshot. So I can probably, we could probably tell you on Twitter. We're telling you on Twitter. Okay. Uh, I'm putting Chris in charge of that. Uh, so now, now they basically like, now that, now that there's this new problem, Michael's new plan to solve this problem is that they just need to get him to move the drugs. So 
cut to party place, but there are noticeably fewer women around this time. I guess the party has finally died down. And Michael shows up at Gerard's party palace and is like, I need my money. Please give me my money. I need my money. And he's like rambling and he's, you know, playing up the Jackson character a lot. And he's like, I need the money because I can't believe that you involved me in something that Chuck Finley is involved with. And Gerard's like, what? So what if Chuck Finley's involved? How do you know that name? And he's like, Chuck Finley is like dangerous. He has definitely run this thing before and no one's ever heard of Chuck Finley because they all end up dead. And then he says, quote, if the devil had a name, it would be Chuck Finley, which is an incredible line. And I love it's this. It's an incredible I, I line. He delivers it so well too. I love that journey for him. Yes. If the devil had a name, it would be Chuck Finley. That's such a good, it's so fun. It's so funny. It's so it delivered by Jackson with his stupid inhaler. Ugh, it's all just chef's kiss. So uh, the 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 bad guys are sufficiently scared into moving the drugs because he's like, what, you think that Chuck doesn't know about your warehouse yet? He's probably there right now. You got to move the drugs. I want my money. Give me my money. And they're like, no, you're coming with us. Like, you're, you're coming to help us move the drugs. And Jackson's like, mm, fine. So... Uh, cut to the warehouse where all the drug boys are moving the drugs into a truck again to like get them out of the way. Fee calls the cops to get them into place once the drugs are like out in the open. And Sam, as Chuck Finley, drives up in a big semi truck. And Gerard is like, well, it's only one guy. Like, what's he going to do? There's like eight of us and we've got all these big guns. And Jackson is like, he's probably got, he's, he's Chuck Finley and he's crazy, but also he's probably got guys in the back of the semi. I bet he's got like a whole army back there. And Gerard's like, well, I know how to handle that. And they like open open fire into the side of this semi-truck. It's kind of a reverse Trojan horse. Yeah, very much so. And as they're like distracted by this, you know, mass murder that they think they're committing and Chuck Finley like runs off, um, Michael kind of gets the better of the guys that were back by the truck, shuts the stuff, shoots the big semi-truck in like a particular place. Cause like the, the voiceover explains that like just shooting a car near its gas tank won't make it explode. Like you have to actually like aid an explosion of a car, but he knows that they've set that up. And so Michael like shoots where he knows the explosion will like be triggered by the entire thing explodes. Michael runs off in the car with all the drugs that have already been packed up. He leaves the police cut, get there and everyone is arrested except for notably okay. Michael Weston. Okay, we have to talk about this, though, because, like, it builds up to the thing that they've been wanting to do ever since he started being Jackson, whereas the moment where Gerard realizes that Jackson, like, that Michael is actually, like, a cool man and not a nebbishy guy, he literally, like, he has the inhaler, he throws the inhaler away in slow motion, unhaunches himself, <laughs> stands up straight and fires a gun. He's like literally like like Christopher Reeve, Clark Kent becoming Superman. <laughs> it's exactly what happens. And then like right. Gerard has to be like, oh no, I've been dealing with a real man all this time. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely dramatic uh, and extremely problematic. But, you know, it's 2008. What are we going to do? Everyone is arrested. Everything is fine. The drugs are returned uh, to, what's her name? Marcella. And at Marcella's place of work, where there's like children in the background, Madeline emerges. And it turns out Michael called him uh, because... Uh, him, well, Michael called uh, Madeline. Yeah, so it turns out Michael called his mom 
uh, and explained what was going on because he felt bad that like he had been keeping these two lovers apart. And so Madeline and uh, Virgil like walk off into the sunset holding hands and it's very sweet. And then Sam makes a comment about how if he has to have a stepdad, Virgil's not a bad one and Michael gets very uncomfortable. We make one more trip to Seymour's house uh, at night. Uh, apparently he asked them to stop by and according to Fee, he sounds even more paranoid than normal. Fee looks really pretty, is wearing like this really nice like white dress. And Michael asks if she's missing a date for this. And she's like, oh no, I won't be missing any more dates. Uh, Michael says she looks beautiful in a very like heartfelt tone. And she looks like she's about to say something when the bodyguard opens the door and invites them inside. They're, uh, they talk a little bit more as they walk inside. She's dating a paramedic. Michael feigns happiness. And then as he's like, I'm really happy for you, Fee, he is set upon by a metal baseball bat uh, wielded by Seymour. So he starts getting the shit kicked out of him. But of course, that doesn't last very long because Michael is not Jackson. Michael is a real man. And so uh, he kind of gets Seymour um, into a different position and Fiona like gets the upper hand of the other guy. And it turns out that Seymour is scared because of who it turns out Michael needs information about. Like he, he found out information that like really freaked him out um, because he tracked this gun to a shop that had done some work on the gun and it had been burned to the ground with the owner inside uh, or the owner was also dead. So Seymour thought he was being set up by Michael and Fiona. All he knows is that some guy picked up some stuff for the gun from this shop, I guess. Uh, things like a, like a high quality, like long distance camera or something. Michael explains that it's something uh, that you would use for proof of death. And the person who purchased these items is named Bill Johnson. No one remarks upon the fact that Bill Johnson is for sure a fake name. And the episode ends. Oh, yeah. And then like, not to get into next week too much, it's not a fake name? Or at least Apparently it not, which is crazy and such a like bad decision. Yeah, that assassin. Why name a character Bill Johnson? Yeah, it sounds so fake. It sounds so fake. But then also to like have the fake, the not fake name, like be given by this assassin who's like, it's fine. I'll just give them my actual fucking name. Bill Johnson. Yeah, it just, it sounds incredibly fake. Yeah, super fake. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the episode. Let's get into our spy tips. There were actually, in my estimation, quite a few spy tips that I felt were practical this week. So this was a good Ooh, week yeah, for like ah. really, really meaty, like high quality spy tips. I feel really beefy, juicy spy tips. Beefy, juicy, uh, medium rare spy tips. Yeah. So spy tip: if you're driving a sports car, you won't be able to outrun an off-road vehicle off-road. Your best bet is to get them on the road where you have the advantage. It's less about speed as it is about maneuverability. Put yourself in a position where you can do something they can't. So this is like a couple of tips rolled into one. And like given the sort of on-screen portion, I thought that that was useful. It was sort of like, you know, the the point of outrunning someone, especially in a very different kind of car than you, is not about speed. Like even if they're faster than you, the point is, is if you're more maneuverable, you can put them in a situation that they cannot escape from. I'll give you this one. I like this one. Yeah, it's fine. And like get like with the sort of um, the pairing of the on-screen stuff, I felt. I felt like I could do something with that. Uh, number two, bar fights aren't just a way to blow off steam. They're a great way to showcase leadership skills and act as a team building exercise. There's also no better way to get for someone new to get noticed. So this is something that's similar to what we've heard before, but it was very concrete in the like, if there's a bar fight, 
um, like this is, I, I can imagine this being practical in a couple of ways. Like it can be practical if you're like building a team that you need to sort of like build morale in. Um, even if you're not a criminal. Start a fight. Who's like trying to, yeah, exactly. And like, but be on the same side. But it's also useful in that if you can manufacture a bar fight between like the person that you're trying to get in good with, um, but like from an external source and then like you help them out, that's a good way of sort of, you know, getting in you know, getting a leg up in that relationship. I'm, like, less certain about this one. That's fine. We can delete it. We've got plenty left to go. Yeah, we got plenty left. It also just, like, it also, because it seems kind of, I don't know if it's true. Well, that's for a lot of these tips. If we go down the rabbit hole of, like, is this actually true or not, I think that we're going to be here all night. That's fair. But no, it just seems like extra lead. That's not a word. I keep, I have invented a word. It seems like extra sort of eh, vague or not vague, but like, yeah, I don't generic. And like, it sounds like it's one of those tips that sounds like retrofitted to the scene. Like, well, we want to have a bar fight. So let's make up a spy tip about bar fights and why bar fights are good as opposed to like, oh, well, here's an idea about how how like bar fights are useful for spy stuff so we should have a spy it you know what i mean i mean i don't care (laughs) i've deleted it it's fine that one's not practical um but this one is dealing with an aggressive adversary isn't always about showing strength sometimes it's best to show weakness if they believe they can dominate you they'll drop their guard of course that means getting dominated you know sometimes i think we need to make this show less sexual moving on because I disagree. When you need to distract someone without raising suspicion, it helps play. It helps to play to preconceptions. Tourists are fat, old people are cranky, and girls can't drive. So as like kind of skirting sexist as this tip is, I do think that it's valuable to like when you're, especially if you're if you're having to like come up with a distraction on the fly, like trying to to play into stereotypes and you know maybe not the more problematic ones but like using stereotypes as a way to like you know basically use someone's bias against them uh, it's like if somebody expects yeah exactly if somebody expects something to happen then they'll be less suspicious when it does oh, that makes sense i'll let you keep this one uh, i'm so thankful that you have given me this gift next counters Counterfeiting pharmaceuticals is pretty straightforward. Fill some vials with your choice of beverage. The trick is to keep people from looking closer. With some compressed gas from your local farming supply store and a few cryogenic chambers, you can convince people that if they get too curious, they could lose a finger to frostbite. My favorite tips are the ones that come with shopping lists. I know! It's so handy. There's also the, like, fake drugs that they came up with that are made of Mountain Dew, which is very funny. Looks like some, like, Jurassic Park kind of shit. It really does. Which I also extremely appreciated. Like some shit that Wayne Knight is hiding in a shaving cream bottle. Exactly. Um, Next, using a Zodiac. So that's the kind of little, um, the little boat that they were using to be pirates. Uh, Using a Zodiac to attack a yacht has a few advantages. It's low to the water, so it's hard to see coming. It tops out at about 60 miles per hour, and it's designed to turn on a dime. Of course, the one disadvantage is it can make for a bumpy ride. I dispute the idea that this thing... I don't know. I feel like this thing isn't that hard to see coming. 
Well, the way that it bounces it, like it, when it kind of goes on like the down part of like a wave bounce, like it did seem like it would, because it's flat and like mm. kind of like low to the ground, low center of gravity. I mean, if it, maybe if it was a bigger boat, I think like part of the problem is that the yacht. Yeah, their, their quote they're unquote like, yacht is a very small boat. It is, yeah. The yacht is the size of the Zodiac. More or less, yeah. It's just like taller. Yeah. But the fact that they give us like a brand and like they talk about like the specific advantages and stuff, like, I don't know. It feels practical to me. Yeah, sure. You can have it. Um, next, need the police to arrive to do something. Uh, I didn't take down the, like, specific language of the beginning of this, but, like, do you need the police? Call in advance. Report a few minor crimes in the general area of where you'll eventually need them to show up so you know someone's nearby. No, that I seems like practical. Because yeah. we've, seen, we've seen, like, tips about, like, how to get the police to your space, like, quickly before, but this seems, like, genuinely practical, like, to get them in position even before you need to get them in position. Most people think that shooting the gas tank of a vehicle makes it explode. Unless the car's on fire, you'll just spill out a few bucks worth of gas. An explosion requires something extra, like a few bags of acetone peroxide taped to a gas tank. No, that's good. I'm, I'm with that, too. Hell yeah, shopping list and explosions. Um... This one I'm not as sure of, but, like, you know, I put it down for posterity. Anyone who plays soccer knows that there's a long nerve that runs down the shin. Hit that nerve and people lock up in pain. I mean, it's specific, I, but it's also, like, kick someone in the shins and it'll hurt. Well, but, I mean, like, the thing that it's implying is that this is kind of a knock someone to the ground button. You know what I mean? Like, so you'll, you'll give a, me this one? This is... This is an incapacitate button. I, I, like, I would need to, like, for me personally to, like, do this, I would need to know exactly where that was. But uh, I feel like of all of the things in this list, this is actually the one that might be the most useful in my personal life. Well, that's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that we've helped you out. I mean, like, I don't, I can't think of a situation wherein I would need to blow up a car. But, you know, if someone's attacking me... Then you need their uh, their their lock up and pain button on their sh- on their shin. All right, fair exactly. enough. And then final practical spy tip of the episode, in my opinion, arms dealers keep gunpowder near handy to make custom made rounds. But gunpowder doesn't need to be in a bullet to be dangerous. Even muzzle flare can set it off. So when dispersed throughout a room, anyone with half a brain puts his gun away. So I dispute the fact that gunpowder is just like around when you're at an arms dealer's house, um, but like the useful in like fact a fucking of... coffee can. Yeah, exactly. It's just Basically, like happens to be literally right next to Michael. Where is it? Like, do you think they're ever mistakenly making gunpowder coffee? Oh, for sure. Have you seen Seymour? True. I like this uh, tip a lot, yeah. though. I think it's a really cool tip. I think it's like kind of like the quintessential burn notice tip. I'm into it. I agree. Yeah. So that's nine whole practical spy tips with one dispute Mm -hmm. that might have made it a 10. So that's a pretty chock full episode. And honestly, like there weren't that many quote unquote spy tips and like voiceover narration outside of these. Like they really maximized the things that they did do in voiceover were super practical. So that was an interesting change. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, speaking of, how do we rate this episode? So, were there at least five practical spy tips in the voiceover? Hell yes, there yes. were. Uh, did they solve the weekly problem with spycraft over violence? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
Exactly. The fact that they had to keep iterating on their plan and like getting more and more clever about like how to use the parts that they'd already put in place to like new advantages was very intricate. And I like that a lot. And the whole point of Jackson is that he's submissive. <laughs> yeah, I, I love and I loved seeing Jackson get dominated. Speaking of Jackson, was there a distinct or revisited alias? There very yes. much was. There very much was. He what even the physicality was great. Like I love when Michael's aliases are like have a physicality to them. Because usually it's just he he stands like Michael Weston but has like a funny voice. But like Jackson Sometimes like, he doesn't even have a funny voice. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, sometimes he's oh, what was that guy's name? Steve Remington. Sometimes he's just Steve Remington. Um, but yeah, like Jackson had this whole, like, if you looked at him and Michael Weston side by side, it might actually be hard to distinguish because the hair was different and the posturing was different. Like the way that he moved his body was different. And it was very, it was very good. Um, Jackson was amazing. Uh, and yeah, then yeah. finally were the side characters used well. So I think Chuck Finley absolutely was. When you see Chuck Finley, you know, it's gotta be a good Sam episode. Yeah. I will say, I don't think Fiona was used that well this week. It, she doesn't need no. to be in order to fulfill this, like, rating card. But, like, when you take a step back from this episode, she didn't blow up the car. It looks like like she might have set it up, but we don't get to see that. Michael blows up a car. Um, and the only other stuff she does is talk about the fact that she's dating again. And then, like, acts like a ditzy driver to get information from Michael really quickly. But like all things yeah. considered, Fiona doesn't really do much this episode. No, I agree. It's a bad episode for Fiona. But as with the male gaze, she's not a person. She's just a pair of legs. So exactly. in the eyes of this episode, she's used great. Tony <laughs> oh, the Tiger, boy. great. All right. So this is a great episode of Burn Notice. It is a great episode of Burn Notice. Would you say it's a great episode of television? I would say, I, okay, I've been giving this episode some shit for being toxically masculine. Mm-hmm. But, it um, is, however, which it, something we have to acknowledge is a burn notice episode, so. It is, I mean, yes, that is true. I mean, I do think it is, like, particularly, particularly a bad example of it. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's one of the most entertaining episodes of this show I've ever watched. I, I really. I 100% agree. Had, I had so much fun was, watching so this episode. Once again, um, uh, and uh, just, this is notable, Virgil, the case of the week guy from this time, was also the star of the first episode that we considered a great episode of Burn Notice. So, like, clearly Virgil's a winner. Yeah. No, I think it was just, and again, like, it was so well-paced and plotted. And, like, yeah, there were so many different, like, problems and obstacles that they had to overcome and things. Like... Yeah, Gerard seemed like he knew what he was doing. Yeah, um, I, I think, honestly, that's what really puts it over the edge for me in terms of, like, good, like, an episode versus great episode is that, like, I genuinely believed that the bad guy of the week, like, was a formidable foe. And that's always going to be more interesting and exciting. Because it's no fun if Michael defeats a ding-dong. But, like, when Michael defeats someone who I felt was at his caliber in terms of, like, you know, foresight and things like that. It's just, it's genuinely, it's a more interesting episode in every way. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, I, damn. I, if this episode wasn't as fan service because I do think a lot of the enjoyment that you get from this episode does require you to have seen earlier episodes. 
Yeah, this isn't. Um, this wouldn't be a good episode to like show somebody first to show. Exactly, off I was gonna say, uh, like if it wasn't for that, I would show this episode to people to people and be like, hey, this is burn notice. It's it's good. Um, <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. to be clear, yeah. <laughs> we have a whole listing of what episodes are good. Uh, but yeah, so I I think we have proven through science definitively that Rough Seas season two episode seven of Burn Notice is not only a great episode of Burn Notice. <laughs> But a great episode of television. Yeah, definitely. Um, like, would you say that it's been your favorite so far? I don't know if I would go that far. Because I have enjoyed uh, a couple of, like, like, Wanted Man still really stands out for me in mm. terms of, um, like, great episodes. Because Fiona was so much more central. And she just got to be, like, wacky and um, petty for no reason. And I really, really like that. But it is, like, really it's good. definitely in my top five of what we've watched. I would say it would be in my top three of what we've watched. So far. I, I would, have, too. And we have, let me let me count. We have, to date, watched 18 or 19 episodes of Burn Notice, and this is definitely in my top three. Yeah. No, me too, I think. Yeah. So that makes three great episodes of Burn Notice for, uh, for the season so far, which uh, has already beaten season one. Beaten. Season one only got two episodes that we consider great episodes of television, and we aren't even halfway through season two, and we've already got three. So, looking good for Burn Notice all of a sudden. Yeah, stepping up their game. Stepping up their game. Speaking of people who step up their game every week, thanks again to Vincent E.L. for our theme music. Uh, You can find more about him and his uh, stepping up great music. Uh, that unfortunately was not used in Step Up, the dance movie, uh, at vincentel.bandcamp.com. And uh, until next week, bye. Toxic masculinity.